You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Philip Edwards will teach on baptism, entering into a deeper experience with God, enveloped in his life and power. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and events. And you can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. I'll take you back to those key verses that we're studying. It's in Hebrews chapter 6. I'll just read them to you again. Just a couple of verses in Hebrews 6 verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance, number one, that is from acts that lead to death, of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We've, I've reversed the order of the laying on of hands and baptisms just because it, it, I wanted to do the two baptisms together. So I did laying on of hands first and moved on to the two baptisms. So we're going to look at baptism tonight. Uh, we'll look at the baptism in water first in this first section and then we'll go straight on to the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's the third foundational truth that we have after uh, repentance and faith. And we said through these two, this is how we come into the kingdom of God. We start our Christian life through repentance and faith in God. Without those two elements, we will never get started on the Christian life. The laying on of hands and the baptisms is to do with the exercise of ministry through the Christian life. The baptisms takes us into deeper experiences of God where we receive from him and then the laying on of hands is the impartation of what God has blessed us with. Baptism in water then. What does it mean to be baptised? Well the Greek word and I've said this uh, many times I'm not a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar I can look at the books just like you can to get meanings of words and sometimes That is really important that we understand, especially when there's maybe a bit of a discussion in the church, even an argument about something to go back into the original and find the meaning of words. The word baptize is from the the Greek word baptizo or bapto, and it means to immerse, to cause something to be dipped into a fluid and then taken out again to baptize it, to immerse it. In the New Testament, there are three or four examples uh, from where people were baptised or uh, speaking about baptism, where we see quite clearly it's more than simply a sprinkling of water on someone. It's an immersion. It's going down into the water. And it is important that we go through immersion because there's a lot of um, symbolic teaching that is very important to the Christian so as I said there's a number of to- there's a number of examples regarding total immersion the first one is when we look in Acts chapter 8 and we look at the baptism of the Ethiopian it says this in Acts 8 38 and 39 and he gave orders this is Philip to stop the chariot 
Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, well, they had to go into it and come out of it. If it was simply a sprinkling of water, then they didn't have to have so much water. They could have done it with just a, a cupful of water. But there had to be sufficient water for them to actually go down into it. The second one is when John, it says, when John was at a place called Anon near Salim. It says this in John 3 and 23. Now John was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water. Again, you see the point that there was a lot of water. The idea being you didn't need a lot of water or plenty of water to sprinkle. You could have done that with a cup of water, but they had to have plenty so they could go down into it and they could immerse. I thought it quite comical when I read this uh, that even the writer of it would say there was plenty of water. It's as though he knew that through the years we'd have problems with this. And so he put this in the scriptures just to clear up any problem we might have because it seems a weird thing to say there was plenty of water. It just, just doesn't make sense when you're recounting a story. But obviously the Holy Spirit knows better and he thought it necessary to put it in there. In the case of Jesus being baptised, when Matthew and Mark write their account, it talks about Jesus in one, one of the accounts, he went up out of the water and then the other uh, uh, gospel says he came up out of the water so the idea is that Jesus obviously walked into the water now I've seen pictures on films and things where Jesus literally does walk into the water up to his waist and then they sprinkle him on his head when he's standing waist deep in water well I wouldn't have seen the point of walking into the water waist deep just to get wet to be sprinkled with anyway uh, so those are three there that I think it talks about immersion, the burial of somebody underneath the water. The one that's most, um, I think, supportive of the whole thing is found in actually Romans, when it's not talking about the account of baptising someone, it's in Romans 6, 4 and 5. It says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. If we have been united with him like this, in his death we will also be united with him in his resurrection now it's obviously it's it's figurative speaking it's saying just as we we die and we're buried in the ground so baptism is being buried in the water just as we're immersed in the ground so we're not visible once we've died so baptism is an immersion in the water so we cannot be seen it is a symbolic thing of burying someone underneath the ground so they're not visible anymore. There are four or five different baptisms that we read about in the New Testament. So I'll just go through the, the five. We only look at two. The first one is, is about John's baptism, which is called a baptism of repentance. It says this in Mark 1 and verse 4. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance. The second one we could look at could be the baptism of suffering. 
We won't be looking at this tonight, but I'll just make reference to it. We read about it in Luke 12:50 and Mark 10 and 38. It says this in Luke 12 and 50. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. And then in Mark it says this. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Then he goes on to say, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. So this baptism that Jesus was talking about here was a baptism of suffering. He would go through a spiritual and a physical suffering. He would be immersed in suffering as though it would just overwhelm him it would envelop him he would be immersed in it and of course it was he was referring to when he was going to the cross both the journey to the cross when he was in the garden of gethsemane and as he goes to the cross he talks this about about a baptism of suffering being immersed in suffering and he says to those who are with him uh, you will go through this as well a baptism of suffering the third example is that of Christian baptism Matthew 28 and 19 that passage that talks about the Great Commission it says therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so this is what we call a baptism of righteousness we'll explain a little bit more as we go on the fourth one is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1 and verse 5. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it's about being immersed in something. It's about this thing totally overwhelming us. It's going right deeply into something. Now, some people consider this one a fifth sort of baptism. Not everyone does, but I, I tend to think there is a fifth one here. It's what John calls a baptism of fire. It's an experience where that which is in us, the, the chaff that's in our life, it gets burnt up. John explains it when he mentions it. Uh, some would say, well, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is the baptism of fire my experience and we mustn't build doctrine and theology necessarily on experience but we can't ignore experience we've got to say well i've seen some people who've received the baptism in the holy spirit they speak in other tongues but it doesn't seem like they've had a baptism of fire and then another period in their life something quite dramatic happens to them i was thinking of paul's conversion paul had quite a dramatic conversion remember when he was going uh, to Damascus suddenly it says a light from heaven came and blinded him it was though this was dramatic it was a real baptism of fire he was completely changed as a person as the result of this another uh, a good example of this is perhaps found in Isaiah it, it's not the baptism in the Holy Spirit and it is referring back to the Old Testament it's when Isaiah goes to the temple I'll read to you what it says in Isaiah 6 and 6 it says as he was standing in the temple he said then a seraph flew to me with a live coal in his hands which he had taken for, with tongs from the altar and he, of course he touches his lips 
and there's a burning that goes on so uh, that's how I refer that to a baptism of fire there's there is an experience that we can go through that everything in our lives becomes consumed by the fire of God we'll study this evening just two the baptism of John the Baptist was a temporary transitional thing and although we learn a lot from it it doesn't relate to us so if you go to a baptism or service and someone preaches on this you're not really baptizing for repentance that's not what it is so but we will look at it we'll try and explain that and we'll see that it's just a transitional thing so John's baptism of repentance first John's John's message when he came remember he came at the start of the gospel he came before the ministry of Jesus John the Baptist came at the end of the Old Testament period he was very much like an Old Testament prophet and he came at the beginning of the New Testament so he was still related to the Old Testament prophets he dressed like the Old Testament prophets he preached like them a very part of fiery repentant type sermon that they should turn back to God and so he's coming with the same message but this time it's not that people should turn to God but they should turn that they might receive the Messiah that's coming so John the Baptist came with a specific message and it was that he was to prepare the hearts of men and women that they might receive the Messiah and also it was to close off the Old Testament with an idea of starting the new with the new covenant the end of the old covenant under the law of Moses introducing the new covenant uh, under the grace of God so John, John prepares the hearts of the people of Israel to receive the coming Messiah. This is what his baptism was all about. It says in Isaiah 40 and verse 3, you might know this verse, a voice of one calling. Now, I've read this before, I've had it read to me, and people have said it like this, a voice of one calling in the desert. It doesn't say that. You have to look at your Bibles a bit more carefully. It says this, a voice of one calling. Now, what's he calling? In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. That is his, that's Isaiah prophesying about John the Baptist's message. And the message is our hearts or the hearts of the people at that time were like a desert. They were like a wilderness uh, and it was barren and they had nothing of God. And he says, prepare a way for the Lord. Repent, change your heart because the Lord wants to come in and, and move into your heart. Make your heart like a highway for the Lord to come and enter into we dealt with this principle when we looked at repentance if you remember and you were this, uh, there at the time uh, I said before God moves uh, he moves first pick that one up Danny well good uh, before before God moves into our lives he just wakes us up as it were and then we re we turn to him and cry out to him and in the crying out he comes we couldn't automatically just wake up one day and start crying out to God he has to do something on us 
And as we cry because he started to move, he'll respond to our cries. God first indicated his intention then through John the Baptist to send the Messiah. I am sending a Messiah, he said, get your hearts ready, prepare yourself, repent, turn to me. We see the people then coming in their thousands, literally, to be baptised by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And as they get their hearts ready, the, the highway for God to come, then God starts to move in sending the Messiah to come. John had to do his ministry before Jesus could come. There had to be a preparing of the way before he could come. The second uh, thing that his message and his ministry is all about, as I said, it was to provide a link between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the dispensation of law, which everyone lived under the law of Moses, that's the, the nation of Israel, to the dispensation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was, he was the link. He was bringing an, old, uh, an end to the old, and he was going to start something of the new. Now, John the Baptist couldn't start anything. What was going to start was when Jesus finished his ministry three years later, Jesus would die on a cross and we'd be resurrected, and then the new covenant, the new dispensation of grace, would then begin. So John came for this small period of time baptizing people with a baptism of repentance. He fulfilled these two things in a very short period of time. It was a transitional period from the old to the new. How long did John baptize for? Well, I, I tried to look into it. No one was very definite. Probably uh, between a year and two years. That's all his, his ministry was for. So gr growing up as a, a, a man just a little bit older than Jesus enters into his ministry, uh, ministers for maybe one or two years through baptism, and then we know he's slaughtered, isn't he, by King Herod. And that's the end of his ministry, his time. He was sent to make a way for the Messiah to come, for God to uh, respond to people. In his message, in John's message of repentance, he, well, in his, in his baptism of repentance, he demanded two things from the people. One, yes, that they repent. That's why it's a baptism of repentance. And the second thing is a public confession of their sins. Only those people who were willing to meet these two conditions to repent and turn back to God and want God to come again and then confess their sins openly. Now, I don't think they met together reciting their sins, but in coming, there was a manifestation to everyone. I'm a sinner. That's why I'm being repent, repentant. I want to change. I want to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. So John actually demanded that anyone who came to him for a baptism had to have already repented of their sins before he would baptize them. So the baptism was a, a visible confirmation that those being baptized had passed through the experience of repentance and forgiveness. Remember when some of the Pharisees came and they said, uh, we're ready to be baptized because obviously they wanted to look right in front of the people. He sent them off 
as he did the soldiers that came he 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 rebuked them in the way that they lived their lives and everyone who came if he wasn't convinced they had repented and they had changed he wouldn't baptize them so he baptized people a baptism of repentance and forgiveness for the coming of the messiah this this experience wasn't real baptism it was just a transitional baptism those whom John baptized, they did not receive inward peace or victory over sin. It was a symbolic sign and it was a confirming that something had happened on the inside of them that they wanted to prepare for the coming of the Lord. But their hearts were prepared to receive the Lord Jesus Christ when he did come with his message. The heart, the wilderness was made ready for the coming of the Lord. So John had quite a specific job. He had a quite strategic job in the preparation of the hearts to receive the Messiah. So that's John's baptism. We're moving on now to consider the other baptism, which is the baptism of repentance, which is the Christian baptism. It is the baptism as a believer that you should have experienced, that you should want to experience or go through. Now, we all have to make a decision whether we do this. There isn't a good reason why we shouldn't. If we have received Christ as our personal saviour, we should follow through on what he's told us to do next, which is to receive a baptism by immersion. Baptism it's an integral part of the complete gospel message what must i do to be saved remember it wasn't just believe in jesus there was more to the answer than that we'll have a look at that in a minute so although that jesus was baptized by john the baptist jesus's baptism was different from everybody else's everybody else was baptized because they had sinned and they were coming to confess their sin and to repent of their sin and turn from their sin. But Jesus had never sinned. So Jesus never had to confess any sins. So you could ask the question, well, why on earth did Jesus get baptized if he didn't have to? Jesus explains this to John. It's in Matthew 3 and 15. It says this, he must be baptized by him in order that he might fulfill or complete all righteousness what on earth does that mean why did jesus get baptized and what does it mean to fulfill all righteousness in this as in many other respects to the life and ministry of christ jesus was deliberately and consciously establishing a standard of behavior we are we have the gospels and we were in we read through the gospels jesus is living away and he's saying this is how you need to live your life so we are saved through his death and his resurrection but we're also saved through his life not not in the in respect of eternal salvation that is through his death and resurrection that we receive eternal life through faith in jesus christ but through our lives we need to be saved from ourselves 
saved from this sinful life that we we live now how is that possible well Jesus said I am the example of how you should live your life that he is the example nothing less than him we live like Jesus lived and so Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness to say this is what you need to do you need to live like me and you need to do the things that I do so by being baptized by John he was setting an example and a pattern for all Christians to follow none of us are exempt if we choose to make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior we must follow the example that Christ has given us and the example that he gave us is to be immersed in water and baptized two or three points worth noting here number one is Jesus was not baptized as an infant he was presented to the to, to the priest at the temple and there a blessing was spoken over him he wasn't baptized as an infant he was baptized when he clearly understood what he was doing and the decisions he was making secondly being baptized is something that is ordained of God it's not a legal command as was imposed in Israel by the laws of Moses but it is for Christians a natural expression of sincere and and wholehearted discipleship so we get baptized because we want to you say well if I don't get baptized does it affect my salvation no it doesn't but why wouldn't you want to get baptized what would be your reason to saying no when it's a clear ordinance and it was an example of what Christ did and said Christ said follow me I'm the only person in the world that never needed to get baptized but I'm doing it to you as a display of what righteousness requires of you that's why we call it a baptism of righteousness baptism is an outward act of obedience a dedication to God a signifying an inward conviction of the heart remember when I said those that went to be baptized by John the Baptist unless they had fruit of repentance he wouldn't baptize them he said no I want to see fruit in your life so baptism follows what's already taken place in our heart it confirms something it's an outward confirmation of what has happened on the inside of us that's why babies can't be baptized it's not possible they can't confirm what's happened in their heart we have to be of an age where we understood what we've done we've repented we believed we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and then we confirm what it is we say we believe in our hearts by going through water baptism what conditions must be fulfilled by those desiring to receive Christian baptism are there is there anything we have to do before we do it well there's a couple of things and they're given to us both in Scripture the first is repentance and the second one is believing let's read this this is on the on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached to the crowds in Acts 2 37 and 38 it says when the people heard this they were cut to their heart and they said to Peter and to the other Apostles brothers 
what shall we do? So they've been convicted that what they've done in crucifying the Lord is a terrible thing. And now they're saying, what can we do now? Because we've heard the truth about Jesus and we're changing our mind about him and we're wanting to believe him and not reject him. And Peter replied, repent. In other words, turn in your thinking, which they were obviously already doing because they were asking what should happen to them. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I don't know about you, but in the Bible, when you're asking a question, sometimes you never quite get a direct answer. And, and some people get two or three answers. I mean, we've been arguing about some theological points here for about 2,000 years. Uh, once I made a list of them, there's too many to mention. Like some people believe that, you know, you can't lose your salvation. Other people believe you can lose your salvation. Some people believe one thing and another. And, and it's like there's, there's adequate answers in scriptures for both of these. You can understand how people get to these varying opinions on things. But there's no opinion about this. We have a direct question, what must we do? And you get a direct answer. You've got to uh, repent and you've got to get baptized. So Peter gives two clear directives. We've seen that repentance is the first response. It's always the first response when we studied it together of the sinner to be saved. You can't get baptized before uh, you've repented repentance come first and then as an act of showing outwardly that we have repented we're new people now we've changed our mind we have a new mindset about god we we demonstrate it through going through the waters of baptism so baptism is an outward seal or affirmation of the inward changed produced by repentance it's an outward sign who's it assigned to well your family and friends that perhaps aren't christians or your family and friends that are christians it's assigned to god it's assigned to principalities and powers it's assigned to the angels it's assigned to everyone it's an outward physical sign that i am a new creation in christ and i'm moving now in a new direction so that's repentance followed by baptism. Also, there's another verse that says we must believe. I believe believing incorporates repentance. You can hardly believe something without changing your mind and thought and repenting. But this is what Jesus himself says in Mark 16, 15 and 16. He said to them, this is to the, the commissioning of the disciples, the apostles. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the good news to all of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I like the way it's just worded. You see, it's the believing or not believing that saves you or condemns you. I get that. So there will be people who will be saved in heaven that have never got baptized. But that isn't part of the condition, but Jesus gives the clear instructions Get people to repent, to turn, to believe, and then to be baptized. Everywhere the gospel is preached then, those who desire to be saved 
are required to do two things based on what Christ has said here. They're to believe, which must involve turning, having a different mind, which is repentance, and then they must be baptised. The church, I believe, in the New Testament, and for the first, well, a long period after, they just believed it. They did it. They never questioned it. Once a person believed in Jesus for his salvation, he was immediately baptised. We read this, that when the 3,000 came to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, when Peter preached on Pentecost, all of them were baptised. What a baptismal service, eh? 3,000. I wonder how long that took. I wonder who got involved in the whole business. Uh, it must have been uh, just, just crazy, really. I don't know how the church could mess this up. It's so clear to me. I don't know how you can mess it up. Honestly, it's just like you've, got to, you've just got to ignore God's word to, to get it wrong, and yet it can be got wrong. What is the spiritual significance then of Christian baptism? Well, in baptism, we are identifying with Christ. It's, it's a symbolic thing, I understand, but, but through it, we are, we are going through the three acts of which Christ went through to secure our salvation. So we're identifying ourselves with Christ. Christ died, was buried, and he rose. We say, Lord, we want to identify with you. We want to die. We want to be buried. And we want to rise as well with you. So it's a symbolic thing. It's an identification with Christ. But before we identify with Christ, let's look how Christ identifies with us. God always has to move first. We respond to God. We can never take the first step. God has to call us and we then respond. So Jesus came and identified with sinners. Before he called sinners to identify with him, you see, we too have to become one. We come one with Christ, one in the spirit. Before we can do this, before we can identify with him, he first identifies with us, then we with him. So his identification was two ways. First, he went through baptism, which he didn't have to do. Then he went through the cross, which he didn't have to do. He did both of these things to identify with us. Sinners cut off from God. So he identified. How did he identify with us through baptism? Well, just imagine the scene. There's scores and scores of people. I don't know how many hundreds had gone to the Jordan to be baptised when Jesus went to the Jordan. I can't see Jesus pushing himself to the front as though he was some sort of celebrity and everyone made a way for him. Nobody knew who he was, by the way. He hadn't done anything up to then, remember? His baptism was the first thing. So he was just like anyone else. I don't know whether they have orderly queues. They weren't British, otherwise they would have had orderly queues. They were just, uh, you know, what I've seen in other parts of the world, first come, first served. It's a big, a big melee, really, to, to get to the front. So I don't know how it was, but what I see is that Jesus is standing with the sinners. He's just like all the other sinners. He's just like everyone else who's coming to repent 
and he's coming to confess. He has nothing to repent of and nothing to confess, but he's identifying himself with sinners. Just as these men and women around were standing before God as sinners wanting to repent, Jesus was standing amongst them as well as a sinner saying, I'm identifying myself with you. He stood in the line, perhaps, and he just walked forward when it was his turn and he was baptized like all the others. But of course, John the Baptist knew who he was because he was a relative. He was John the Baptist's cousin. He knew him and he knew something of him and God spoke to him and God said to him, you know, a, a dove will come and land on his head and then you'll know that he is the Messiah. And of course, as he is baptizing Jesus, this happens and then John the Baptist knows clearly who Jesus Christ is. So Christ identifies himself with them in their relationship with God as sinners. He stood with us as though he was a sinner with us. He just stood alongside us. His baptism in the river also it pictured two things. It pictured his death and it portrays his resurrection. So Jesus is going into the water and as he's buried in the water, as he goes down, it typifies his death. And then as he's brought out, it's symbolic of his resurrection. Secondly, the way he identified with us was that in going to the cross. He went to the cross as your and my substitute. He's the only person who didn't have to go to the cross. But he went as your substitute in the same way he was baptized uh, as a sinner. So he went to the cross as a sinner. What he took upon himself was God's judgment of you. So he went there instead of you. God judged you a sinner. But because Christ went in your place, he put all that on Christ. He punished Christ. He took his life for each one of us so in his life and in his death Jesus who was sinless he took the place of those who were sinful he fully identified with us in his baptism that's why Jesus got baptized it was an example to us to follow now any excuse that you can think up of not following this identification I don't get that because it's so clear in Scripture. Secondly then, how do we identify with Christ? Because our baptism is a form of identification with Christ. When you became a Christian, two things happened to you simultaneously. Our old way of life finished. It died. And a new way of life started you were once subject to the kingdom of darkness now you were being translated into the kingdom of his son it happened in that moment the old person died and a new person was born it says in romans 6 11 you're to count yourselves dead to sin but alive to god in christ jesus the old life of sin you died to that and now you're alive to the new life in Christ Jesus. It says in Corinthians 2 5 and verse 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. The old 
in my case the old Philip has died he's dead and there is now a new Philip who lives for God I've died to the old life and I now live for him the moment our lives were linked to Christ through repentance and receiving him and God giving us the faith and then the gift of righteousness in our lives two things that happened to Christ also happened to us and we rose with him in a new life so what is this baptism then number one baptism is about death is about burial and is about resurrection and in this we identify with Christ Christ died was buried and is resurrected and what we're saying Christ because you identified with me I'm going to identify with you now you stood in my place as a sinner and got baptized you went to the cross and you died in my place now what I'm going to do is I'm going to identify myself with you I'm going to die I'm going to be buried and then I'm going to rise again so by immersion in water we're saying in effect that just as Jesus died for our sins on the cross so we have died to sin in our lives so when we offer ourselves to be buried we are making a statement that says I have died the best thing you can do with a dead body is to bury it get it out of the way because it's only going to stink in a short period of time so he he says right when you when you make yourself ready for baptism it is a signified a signal that you have died you are a dead person to the old person and so you need to bury that person under the water as we go under the water immersed under just as in the grave or immersed in the ground burial of a dead person just as Jesus was buried in the tomb so we couldn't see him anymore his body was hidden away from us so when we are lowered beneath the water our lives as sinners are regarded as put out of sight the old me disappeared the day I was baptized that's what it symbolized now I think what we ought to do when we baptize people is hold them under the water a bit longer than we do we sort of get them in and get them out quick I mean no 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 we make our children suffer more in the bath than that you know we scrub them and that so I think when you hold someone under the water in baptism hold, hold them under for a good five or ten seconds you know just bury them make sure they're really buried make them know what's happened that you've buried them and they're not coming up quick again so they're properly dead and properly buried anyway that's me and uh, the way I would do it anyway that's the way I used to do it anyway but although uh, quite often I wouldn't uh, do it other people would do it for me so Romans 6 and 4 says this we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death so the day I got baptized the day you were baptized the day you were immersed in water you said to God you need to bury the old me because the old me is dead he doesn't want to continue anymore you might as well bury this old dead body our baptism becomes a kind of fu a funeral we're buried in a watery grave by which a declaration is made to all 
that the sinner has been committed to death. He's finished with. You never have to sin again. You've passed from death into life. Something dramatic has happened to you. That's why baptisms are so exciting. I've never been to a, a dull baptism service. I've never been to one where it's miserable. It's always full of life. It's full of excitement because someone is passing from death unto life. It's an exciting thing to happen. You can't imagine someone being risen from the dead and we're all being miserable about it. You can't imagine as people, we would just get so excited that someone had come back to life from the dead and so we've buried the old and we're coming up as the new death death followed by a burial prevents our returning to our former way of life you bury the old and he can't come back to life again he's been dead and buried the picture is really of the children of Israel. Remember when they, they came out of Egypt and they had to go into, uh, well, they ended up walking through the wilderness, but they come out of captivity into freedom. There was the water in front of them and the water parted and they went through the water. And then when the enemy came after them, he was completely drowned in the water. So they passed from death to life. Satan had no longer a hold on them anymore it's important that's why we get baptized because as we go through these waters it's a symbolic sign to god and to everyone else to the demonic forces my old my old self is now dead satan you can't have me anymore i'm a new creation in christ and i'm moving on with him coming out of the water then signifies our resurrection romans 6 and 5 says if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So just as Jesus came out of the tomb in resurrection life, in a newness of life, we come out of the waters of baptism in newness of life. We are a new creation in Christ. We've buried the old dead one and we've come out a new one. Jesus was raised by the power of God from the dead. When we come out of the water, we come up with the power of God in our lives. The anointing of God is upon us. We are lifted from the water to live a new life, a distinctive life, the life of Christ himself. It says in Galatians 2 and 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ himself, he lives in me. It also speaks of the future that we will be resurrected one day from the dead. Just as our physical body comes out of the water, one day our physical bodies will be raised again to newness of life to receive the coming of the Lord. So that's baptism in water want to look at uh, the nature of the experience of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Scripture describes it as two things, two ways. One is we're baptized in the Holy Spirit and the other is we drink in the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
So one is the Spirit comes upon us and the other illustration of the baptism in the Spirit is we drink it in and receive it into ourselves. Let's first look at then the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We've already discussed in great detail, baptism means immersion. So God's plan for all of us is that we would be immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it comes from above. We're immersed in something that comes down from heaven and just engulfs us. Just as we would be immersed in water and completely submerged, so we're submerged in the Holy Spirit. A coming down of God's Spirit from above, completely engulfing the believer, enveloping in heaven's atmosphere. In Acts 2 and 2 it says, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. This was their baptism. So just slow down there and just imagine it because sometimes we read familiar passages quickly and move on. Wherever they were, uh, they were in a room together, the door was locked, they were praising God, they were waiting like Jesus had told them to wait in the room. And so the Holy Spirit just came in and filled the whole room. And it says there were tongues of fire that sat on their head. Now, I've seen these comical illustrations of tongues of fire. I think it was more to do with uh, fire. Uh, it, it appeared as though fire just filled the whole room where they were. It must have been tremendously hot to explain it like that. And, and it filled every part of the room where they were. There was no escape from it. And, and if you looked, you might have seen it looking like fire that was above them and around them. The whole atmosphere then was filled with the Holy Spirit. If you've ever had the, the privilege and the joy of just praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit, they definitely feel a warmth, a glow coming over them. More often than not, a shaking takes place, tremendous heat flowing through their body. They were immersed from above by the supernatural power of God. A similar thing happened to those in the house of Cornelius. It says in Acts 10 and 44, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, remember he was invited to this Gentile house. Peter at first thought the, the gospel wasn't for the Gentiles, but God showed him he needed to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And as he's speaking, as he's explaining to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, it said the Spirit came on all of them. So whatever they experienced on the day of Pentecost and the Spirit coming into the room, it's the same thing in the house of Cornelius. The Spirit comes into the room and it fills the room. And it says the Holy Spirit had been poured out on them even on the Gentiles. So God had poured it into the room. The Spirit of God just came and filled the room where those Gentile people were receiving the Gospels. So it appears that in some cases, Jesus baptizes new believers as and when he wants to. 
In other cases where we read it, it comes through the laying on of hands. Now, God wants to involve us in as much of the kingdom work that he can. That's why he gives us the privilege of laying hands on people and seeing them filled with the Spirit. Now, in the two cases that we've looked at where Pentecost, Jesus sent the Spirit into the room and in the house of Cornelius, he sent the Spirit into the room. There was no laying on of hands. It was a first in both cases. The first time the Holy Spirit came, the first time it came upon the Gentiles. See, Peter and the other believers would never have laid hands on the Gentiles, not in a month of Sundays. Uh, I know that God had said, listen, they're acceptable. They wouldn't have done it. So Jesus himself came and baptized those people in the house of Cornelius. Jesus himself said in Luke 24 and 49, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So there's no question about it. Your baptism in the Holy Spirit is the power of God from heaven coming down upon you and the idea that it clothes you, it goes all on the outside of you. It just, you're engulfed in the precious power of God. The second experience of the Holy Spirit, I said, was drinking. First, we're baptized into the Holy Spirit. Then we drink the Holy Spirit. It says this, and uh, we read it in John 7 and 37. It says, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. If you want the Holy Spirit, you drink the Holy Spirit in. When I pray for people to receive the Holy Spirit, I encourage them to drink it in. Drink it. Drink it into yourself. Receive it from the Lord and let it flow into your being. Not only around you and all over you, but let it get right on the inside of you. Then he, he moves on in this particular passage about saying, if you're thirsty, come to drink. He says, when you've drunk enough and your thirst of God has been quenched, he said, I want you then to be channels so the Holy Spirit can flow through you. We looked at this in some detail with the laying on of hands. The first the Holy Spirit comes into us and then he flows out of us. It says, John and 7 and 38 streams of living water will flow from within you and this he is speaking of the Holy Spirit so there's two wonderful experiences in us and all around us and over us one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit is that we will be able to relate to other people we're going to look at several other purposes, but we'll hold that one for a minute. God wants us to reach out to the needy. He says, streams of living water will flow from within you. This speaking of the Spirit. So the filling of the Spirit of God, the anointing of the Spirit of God, is that we would go and be a channel or the form of a channel of blessing to others. It's not that you're the blessing. You're the channel of the blessing. If someone says you're wonderful, it is the Holy Spirit working through you that's wonderful. He is the wonderful one that has come and he is flowing through you and touching them. In that verse there, it says streams. It doesn't say a stream of living water. It says there will be streams. So we can meet all sorts of people 
with all sorts of problems and as we meet them in the power of the Spirit the Spirit can flow through us and touch all sorts of people it says in Acts 1 and verse 8 you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you we're going back to this anointing coming on us and you will be my witnesses it says in Matthew 12 and 34 for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks so we put these two verses together God wants to fill us with his spirit so we become witnesses when the heart is full of God it must overflow any vessel that you fill up to the brim it's going to pour over the top so as we remain filled with his spirit into our hearts it will always start to spill out it will start to be a channel of blessing to other people some of us that channel of blessing it flows through our hands it's what we do for others it is the verbal witness it is the speaking of the life of God to other people it's not necessarily preaching to people but that which which comes out of our mouth is life building it, it's glorifying God it's positive it touches the lives of people it brings hope into people's lives sometimes the Spirit of God simply flows through our eyes just by just by people seeing our eyes it can touch them or it can flow through our hands in what we do it's a supernatural overflow of the Spirit that's why we have to keep being filled with the Spirit it seems somehow the Spirit just drains away and then we have nothing to give the life the things that we should be saying they're not flowing anymore from our lives because we're empty it's from the overflow of the heart that these things flow out of our lives so it's about keeping filled to overflowing Peter on the day of Pentecost it says this in Acts 2 and 14 then Peter stood up with the 11 now Peter had never preached much before and he had never preached to thousands of people but when he gets up with the 11 he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd 3,000 people got born again on that day oh I'd love to preach a sermon like that and see 3,000 people get saved I mean I know it wouldn't have been me and I tell you something it wasn't Peter on the day of Pentecost either it was the power of God that went on the words that Peter spoke if we speak the words of God if we speak truth the Holy Spirit can take those words and can energize them and do good with them if we speak anything else the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with it he wants to energize the words of truth the words of the gospel the words of peace the words of love he wants to move on them it says in Ephesians 5 18 and 19 instead he says be filled with the Spirit and what happens speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs sing and make music in your heart to the Lord he doesn't say you're supposed to sing to anybody because <laughs> some of you can't I'll join those ranks he says we speaking to one another with psalms with positive words with that and he says in your heart you're making melody unto the Lord the song of the Lord is overflowing within you as you're full of his spirit in Acts 2 and 15 it says these men are not drunk 
as you as you uh, suppose remember on the day of pentecost when the spirit came in and they were just worshiping and praising god in all these other language and the people said they're drunk i mean they're obviously having a great time and he said no they're not drunk they're full of the spirit so the holy spirit it will help us overcome our fears and it will give us something to say overcome our lethargy and give us something to do to reach out to be a channel of blessing to people that's part of the function and purpose of the holy spirit coming into us the baptism is not a force it's not like um star wars you know the force be with you it's not that sort of force at all okay it's it's not something that in fact the holy spirit is gentle he's typified isn't he like a dove that's coming and resting on the head of jesus so there's something gentle about him baptism in water is it's not a command yes i meant baptism in water it's not a command it's not a formal order from god like the ten commandments but it's what we call an ordinance a religious ritual that demonstrates our adherence to faith when we get into the new testament and the new covenant there's no law and command we do things in the new testament because we have a passion in our heart for god he he reluctantly commands us to do anything remember when paul speaks he says i urge you to do certain things he he pleads with people to do things he doesn't give dictates to people the baptism in the holy spirit is not an ordinance you don't have to be filled with the holy spirit if you don't want to that's quite all right it's an invitation you're invited to come and be filled with the holy spirit invited into a deeper experience with god you're invited to enter into the life of the supernatural do you want to do you want the life of the supernatural now some christians will say no thanks i'll just live a normal natural sense-led christian life i don't want to experience the supernatural other christians say i want as much as the supernatural as i can get it says if anyone is thirsty let him come to me you don't have to go and be filled with the spirit it's if you want to if you have a thirst if you want to enter into the things of the spirit the holy spirit is not a dictator he's described as a comforter or a teacher one who will guide us one who will support us but it is supernatural a life lived with the holy spirit is a supernatural life and we are to have supernatural experiences on a daily basis because we're living with the supernatural he is one who draws alongside us to support us he's not dictating to us or governing our lives he is supporting us as you yield your will to god's will and ask for the help of the holy spirit then he comes and we must never forget to do that it doesn't matter how confident you become in any aspect of ministry or what you do in in every aspect of life be dependent upon the holy spirit ask for his help 
all the time in all that you're doing say holy spirit help me i want to live this spiritual life help me live this way god god wants you to live a yielded life to him which means yielded to the holy spirit who's come to work with you god only consumes with the fire what we are prepared to place on the altar of sacrifice that which you sacrifice to god all the the self-will things as you sacrifice them to god god burns them up and so the spirit has greater access in our lives a little word of warning you can be filled with the holy spirit but it will do you no good at all if you're not willing to be guided counseled directed and controlled by him so you can be full of him you can be singing his praises you can you can be singing in tongues and speaking in tongues but when he comes and says do this or don't do that or move over here or move there or step out into this and you say no you're full of the spirit but he's no good to you he wants to help to direct your life to counsel you through situations the holy spirit will require from us a life of continual submission and waiting on god we have to continually give ourselves to waiting on him it's easier when you're older to be led by the spirit than when you're younger sorry that young ones you'll get there because all we want to do when we're younger we want to get on with it don't we? we want to get on and build something get on and do something get on and get things moving because as we get a bit older and we get a bit wiser and we might get a bit um uh, you know not able to do so much we 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 tend to listen more and rest more on the holy spirit anyway that's my experience i always found myself of you know with so much to do that sometimes i was too busy and i can't get around that i'm not making excuses for myself i'm just saying that's the way that it is it's much easier to get filled with the spirit than it is to stay filled with the spirit you work that one out the baptism in the holy spirit is not a substitute for anything else it's no substitute for any of the other provisions of god we've spoken about or mentioned it to someone about putting on the armor of god if you leave one part of the armor off the other parts don't cover that part you've taken off if you haven't got truth on hope is no substitute for truth hope is hope and truth is truth righteousness is no substitute for faith you have to develop faith righteousness hope trust you have to build these virtues in your life and one doesn't cover another love love is no substitute for the holy spirit if you go around thinking well i'm just going to be full of love and love everyone and i, I won't bother too much with the power of the spirit well that's not the answer in fact to love people the way that god requires we need to be full of the power of the holy spirit but one doesn't substitute another this is a bit scary a verse in 1 corinthians 13 and 3 it says if i give all i possess to the poor 
and surrender my body to the flames. Now, that is going to take a work of the Holy Spirit within you, without a shadow of a doubt, to give everything you have away and to surrender your life to be burnt in the flames. But he says, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So he says, listen, you can be full of the spirit that you would go to these great measures, but, but that doesn't mean that you mustn't be full of love as well. So one doesn't substitute the other. We must develop love. We must develop faith and righteousness. We must develop the life of the spirit. We must develop all of these things in our lives. It's an unfamiliar realm, life in the spirit to most people. The baptism in the Holy Spirit, you see, it's a spiritual experience. It's a supernatural experience. Just to think that you're sitting or standing one day and God pours out the power of God from heaven and you start to shake, you start to speak in a language that you've never spoken before. That's supernatural. At least there's nothing else but something that's supernatural. Now, if you've never had anything to do with the supernatural, that could be a little bit scary. It's just like, well, who's in control here? What's happening to me? I'm not used to this sort of thing. I'm not comfortable with this. For many people, that is their first taste or experience of anything supernatural. They've never had the evil side of supernatural come near them, and they've never had God's side of the supernatural. They've just lived their life out of their senses on a daily basis, just, just living their life out of their senses. And now we're saying, no, you can have the supernatural come and energize your life and be with you on a daily basis. A lot of people aren't at home with the supernatural. A lot of churches aren't at home with the supernatural, so it doesn't encourage it. It might play with it a little bit, but it doesn't encourage the power of the supernatural because when he comes, he will invade. Often he will cause chaos. He will come and, and frighten people because they're afraid of the supernatural. The realm of the supernatural will take you into spiritual conflict almost straight away. You'll see things and understand things that you never saw before because God kept them hidden from you. Let me mind you what it says in Mark 1, 12 and 13. It says, at once, this is immediately following after Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, at once the Spirit sent him into the desert. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. His first experience of being anointed by the Holy Spirit was to be led to confront the enemy. It is though once one receives the Holy Spirit, all sorts of channels are open in our spirit, in our mind, to the reality of the evil that is around us, to the satanic, to the demonic. Many, many more channels are open in our understanding. As I read through the scriptures, and you know I've done quite a bit of uh, deliverance ministry, what I see in the Old Testament is the Old Testament saints could not protect themselves against the enemy. 
they had they had no weapon against him so when the enemy attacked his people God had to intervene God had to deliver them God had to set them free God had to deal with the demonic they had nothing in in themselves to be able to deal with Satan in fact they hardly knew it was Satan when anything happened they said it was God remember Job Job didn't have a clue it was anything to do with the devil nor did any of his friends we do because we read the introductory verses of it that says this is the devil doing all this and that was the same of, of different saints in in the Old Testament because when it comes to the New Testament we have within us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit we're now new covenant men and women of God and God because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit expects us to take our stand against the devil to take our stand against evil we have to be the ones now that take the stand God just doesn't come as he did in the Old Testament and and just do all the work behind the scenes because we're not capable we're more than capable now because of the Holy Spirit Jesus shows us how to do this in Matthew 4 and uh, those early verses there we read where Satan where Jesus is led uh, into the wilderness and then Satan comes he's fasting and Satan tempts him uh, but Jesus's response is always the same to send the devil packet he says it is written it is written he brings the word of God into the situation all the time do you know Satan can quote the Bible he's very good at it when he attacked Jesus he quoted the Bible he quoted what Moses had said in Deuteronomy he, he said it see you need to know the Bible better than the devil if you can't quote the Bible better than the devil the devil will beat you every time because he's smart he's really smart now it says in Ephesians six seventeen, it said take the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God so it's only the only defensive weapon we have to strike against the enemy which is the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God it is not the Holy Spirit that deals with the devil it is the Word of God that deals with the devil we need to understand this it isn't the Holy Spirit it is the Word of God but when you speak the Word of God to the devil he empowers the words that you speak which sends the devil packing so Jesus he knew the power of the Word of God so when Satan attacked him he took the Word of God and the Spirit got on the word that Jesus spoke and dealt with the devil so it wasn't the Holy Spirit per se but the Holy Spirit on the word I'll give you an example of this when Jesus was on the boat and there was a tremendous storm and he was sleeping in the back of the boat and they were all terrified for their lives Jesus got up and he told the wind and the waves to stop how would that how is that possible how would they stop because he said they should stop because the Holy Spirit got on those words that Jesus spoke and they empowered the words that he spoke to quell the storm so the Spirit has to get on the words that we speak what you speak the scriptures that you use the words that come out of your mouth it is that the Holy Spirit empowers and enforces 
he doesn't put his power on anything he puts it on the word of God if we speak his word the Spirit of God will come on it Jesus's words then were empowered by the Holy Spirit there are a number of important purposes the Holy Spirit is intended by God to accomplish in a believer's life let's just go through these as we come to an end here how much we accomplish how much we accomplish for God yes of course it depends on God but it depends on us as we put ourselves into a position if we if we work with the Holy Spirit we let the Holy Spirit empower us he will work in us and through us and with us God's intention for every believer once he's full of the Holy Spirit and listen it's optional like I said you don't have to be full of the Spirit but choosing to be full of the Spirit he wants you to live a supernatural life a spiritual life the supernatural should become natural to those that are full of the Spirit I challenge you with this do you think the book of Acts was what the church should be looking like today or was that just some historical account what do you think should we be living like they lived in the book of Acts seeing what they saw or should it be like it is today you see we have to make those decisions individually personally we have to make those decisions this is an interesting little verse Acts 19 11 it says this God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so what does that indicate well Paul just didn't do the ordinary ones he did the extraordinary ones so it must have been ordinary for miracles to happen because they said well no Paul just doesn't do the ordinary ones everyone else does the ordinary ones Paul does the extraordinary miracles miracles then must have been an everyday occurrence for the early church the purpose then of the filling of the Holy Spirit it's obviously the first one must be to witness we know this clearly in Acts 1 and verse 8 it says but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses it is though we are clothed with power from on high so we can witness for Christ that witnessing uh, it can be in our actions it can be in our words or a combination of both he says an interesting thing he says you shall be my witnesses my you shall witness about me he says don't witness about your church don't witness about your experience don't witness about doctrines witness about me speak about me Jesus said when I am lifted up I will draw men to me if you lift up your church the Holy Spirit can't do anything with that but he can do it with Jesus if you lift Jesus up he draws people to Jesus and he draws people to the Savior the second purpose is for prayer Romans 8 and 26 it tells us we have a weakness when we pray it's very clear listen we do not know what we ought to pray for 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Most of the time when we go to prayer, we know the need, but what we tend to do is give God the answer. We should really stop ourselves from doing that. You can suggest what you would like God to do, but when you've made all your suggestions, well, I've learned not to bother doing that. It's thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, what do you want to do here? Lord, this is what I see. This is what is pain in me. This is what I'm hurting me. I bring this before you. Now, please, you have your will and your way. And we've looked at this before, looking at the Holy Spirit. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to pray through you, to pray through you in other tongues, to pray through you. Pray with your understanding, but also pray with the Spirit. So our bodies become temples for the Holy Spirit to pray in. The purpose, three, of the Holy Spirit is for teaching. He comes to teach us. He is, the Word of God says, he is the great teacher of the scriptures he comes to lead us into all truth he comes to reveal jesus to us he comes to interpret god's word to us we cannot study without the empowerment of the holy spirit we cannot it's not possible we need to ask the holy spirit to reveal truth to us he comes to guide us we live in a very dangerous world the spirit comes to guide us because we don't know the way to step through all the problems that are out there. And it's not only spiritual things. Every day, whatever you're doing, you need to take the Holy Spirit with you and talk to him. Say, what's the best way to do this? Take him to a meeting. Take him, to any, take him all the time and be open to his guiding and leading all the time. Have an ear listening for his direction in your life let him guide you day by day john 16 and 13 says this but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth we want to walk in the truth we want to be guided by the spirit of god hebrews 11 7 this at 7 says this by faith noah when warned about things not seen you go, what on earth can you be warned about that you've never seen? Well, God spoke to him from the very uh, council chambers of heaven and said, Noah, I'm going to flood the earth. So he said, God, what is a flood? I don't know what a flood is. Can you explain that to me? He said, yeah, it's when I put so much rain on the earth. He said, stop. What's rain, God? I don't know what rain is either. So you see, he, he didn't know anything. It had never rained before. It could never flood on the earth because it had never rained. So it says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. There's no way he could have known what God was going to do unless God came and explained it all to him. That's what he wants to do to us. He wants to come from, the Holy Spirit comes from the very chambers of heaven and explain things, explain what God is doing and how he wants to direct our lives. The fifth purpose of the Holy Spirit is to bring health into our lives. The life of Christ is made manifest through our bodies. Yes, he, he leads us spiritually and 
there's many unseen things that we appreciate that others don't see, but he also wants to manifest his life through us. He wants to, in our conversation, in our actions, in all that we do, we see Christ manifested in people's lives. Sometimes when people receive Christ as their saviour, habits that they've had for years simply break off. The, 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 the coming of the Holy Spirit in the person of Christ, entering into them, it just overwhelms parts of their life and they're gone from, from their life. Maybe it's drugs or uh, addiction to drinking or gambling or uh, a foul mouth that they have. The coming of the Holy Spirit simply just deals with it in an instant. It'd be lovely if he dealt with everything like that, but that's not the case. Just on some things, he just does that. He overpowers our physical bodies. In Romans 8 and 11 says, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. A sure and certain hope of the resurrection and the promise that God will rent, sorry, reconstitute the elements of our body. We will become ashes or dust. Thousands, millions of Christians are now simply dust and ashes in the earth. They're still here as atoms and dust and ashes in the earth. And he says, when Jesus Christ comes, the Spirit of God will come into the earth and it will gather all the atoms, all the dust, all the ashes, all the particles of that person and reconstitute a body. That body that you have will be rejoined, brought together again by the power of the Holy Spirit. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body. You will stand before Jesus Christ, the man with the resurrected mortal body, with your resurrected mortal body, and you will stand before him and he will talk with you, he will love you, he will embrace you, you will experience that relationship man to man or woman to man, you will experience that because God by his power will just bring our bodies together and raise us up again. And the final purpose I've got for you tonight of the Holy Spirit, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. The ultimate purpose is to unite all believers, that we would be one. When the Jews in the house of Cornelius were listening to Peter's message. The Jews were very doubtful whether they should relate to the Gentiles at all. The thing that convinced them that they should embrace the Gentiles as their brothers and sisters in Christ was they started speaking in other tongues. As the Spirit of God came upon the household of Cornelius and they started speaking in other tongues, all the Jews said, they have received the same thing that we have received, which was the promise of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we cannot reject them, that they are our brothers in Christ. It was only because they spoke in tongues did they receive them, because the same Spirit that entered into Peter and the others had entered into that household of Cornelius. He wants to unite the church so we become one in him. Amen. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can sign up for our next module which is Handling Stress. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so on the website via our secure online payment system. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.